Happy Mother's Day, everybody. It's great to have you here. And, you know, I've just been reflecting. This is the first Mother's Day I've had without my mum. Folks, we've been in a series on mercy, the wonder of mercy. And so today, because it's Mother's Day, I want to go down the angle of sometimes a very challenging topic, showing mercy in your own home. It's a sad fact I've noticed that sometimes the hardest place to show mercy is within my own home, with those who you live very close to, or who you are actually related to. I've also noticed that it's a typical axiom that we are less gracious to our spouses than often we are to total strangers or even some people in the office. We're often less gracious to our own children than strangers. What's wrong with that picture? Because that bothers me. Have you ever noticed, for example, you're having a maybe a major argument? You know, at home, you know one of those that you've had and I've had? And it's a knock-down, drag-out fight. And next minute the phone rings, ring, ring. Hello? And that very posh voice that you have, just reserved for the phone. Has it ever struck you as strange? What just happened? Notice that for some reason you could control your anger for a stranger who you may not even know on the end of the phone, but you couldn't or you struggle to control your anger when you're having conflict with somebody within your own home. Does it ever bother you like it bothers me that sometimes we reserve some of our meanest words for those that we love? The people that we're supposed to love most in this life. And if that's true, maybe you, like I can, can identify with these words on your screen and on your outline that David said. He said this in Psalm 101 verse 2. Lord, I want to live a blameless life, but how I need your help, especially in my own home. <laughs> yes, especially where I long to act. I really do want to act as I should. Now, you may think that you're a very loving person, and love and this whole topic we've been talking about for the last four weeks on mercy go hand in hand together. So let's begin this morning with a quick quiz. So there on your outline, I want you to think about this. When, how really mercifully are, uh, merciful are you with your family, really? For example, first question, when my spouse or sibling, it could be that annoying sibling or another family member, here it goes, get some details wrong whilst I'm telling a story? Do I A, interrupt, adjust the story and correct them publicly? Or B, I say nothing, let it go, knowing that I've done the same thing? Which one? Choose A or B. What's you? A or B. Write down your answer now. Now you may not cheat on this because God is watching. Admit it, come on, admit it. This is a test of humility. You, may, you could also have a problem lying. If you put A rather than B, you're probably lying. 
So we'll start right from the get-go this morning. You need to admit that you're interrupting and correcting and um, publicly is much more likely. How about question number two? When my spouse or siblings or another family member keeps making the same mistake, do I A, become highly irritated and angry at them, or B, graciously forgive and pray for them? A or B? Okay, I can actually sense a corporate sense of humility rising about now. <laughs> Number three, when my spouse or sibling or another family member is getting more attention than I think they deserve, do I A, feel resentful and feel the immediate need to bring them down a notch or a peg, or B, do I celebrate with them with their victory? What do you do? What's your natural inclination? Now, I, I know some of you are lying through your teeth. <laughs> Putting on a good impression there. Remember, God knows. <laughs> he knows the answers. Now, this last one comes up often. Your spouse or a brother or a sibling or an auntie says something I do not understand. I'm going, what? Do I A, assume they have the best motivation for doing it? Or B, question their motives and think the worst? Which way do I naturally slide? Is what the question really is. A or B? Now, on that last one, my observation is that sometimes I'm not very sure of my own motives, if I'm honest, if I look deeply inside, and probably either do you. Last question. Am I more polite with A, strangers, or B, my own family? You'll just say, get this, do that, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Whereas in a stranger, you may say, please, would you... Thank you. So the question is, what do you normally do? Now I can see that some of you, judging by your faces, are ready for the message about now. <laughs> uh, maybe I need to look at this whole mercy deal in the context of my family. It's fine when it's out there, but as David said, what about what happens inside the four walls of my home that other people don't even know about? God does remember. That's why we're talking about that today. And I've been saying for weeks that mercy is love in action. And I want to pick up, so whatever is true of love is also true of mercy. I want to pick up from a very famous passage, but I want to look at it through fresh eyes of mercy today. And God gives us 15 characteristics there, 15 very descriptive, so there's no mm, misapprehension about what love and mercy actually entails and what it looks like. I, if I'm unclear with something, I will often ask my family, so what does that look like to you? So you're asking God today, what does mercy and love look like? And he's saying, this is what it looks like. 1 Corinthians 13, 4. It's not the way the world sees it. Antithetical. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. 
It is not boastful or proud. Love is not rude. It's what God says. Love is not self-seeking, not me first. That's not love. That's selfishness. Love is not irritable or easily angered. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil. It rejoices in the truth. Love is always supportive. Love always trusts. Love is always hopeful. Love always perseveres and never gives up. Love never fails. It never ends. Now these are the 15 marks of mercy. And I said to my wife this week, I said, honey, well, I'm about to talk on Mother's Day. There are 15 points here. What do you think I should talk on? She said, whatever you do, make it short. <laughs> so we're going to focus on four of the 15. <laughs> I'm teasing her. Four ways to show love and mercy in my own home. Number one, based on what we've just read from God's word. His words are always important. Number one is by overlooking irritations and offenses. By overlooking. One of the greatest skills my mother taught me was how not to catch bricks. Do you know what I mean by a brick? Somebody throws you a brick at you to hurt you. My mum taught me how to parry them. Parry is let it go past. Don't pick up the brick. People will throw a lot of things at you, and one of the greatest skills you can learn is to not pick the brick up by overlooking irritations and offenses. You see, because many families and a tremendous number of marriages are buried with a lot of little digs. That's how you bury a marriage. Lots and lots and lots of little digs. Death by a thousand cuts. Irritations and offenses that people hold on to. Now the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 13.5, backing up the truck here, love, real love, not that fake junk, which is totally fallacial, what Hollywood promotes, is not irritable or easily angered. Now there is a time when, we'll get to that later, when anger can be appropriate, but real love is not irritable or easily angered. In other words, it's not touchy, you know, prickly, irritable. People who love and show mercy aren't easily angered that people, when people cross them. Some of them you can feel them. It's like the prickles, the porcupine hairs go up. This is not the way of love. God doesn't want us to be easily provoked over disagreements. But instead, to respond in a loving, God-honoring way, just like he's spoken to, a loving, as defined by 1 Corinthians 13. Now this does not mean that proportionate controlled anger, proportionate and controlled anger is always wrong. Anger sometimes can be a motivating factor when it is addressed against injustices or severe wrongs. 
There is a righteous kind of anger and there's an unrighteous kind of anger. Two types of anger. There's an unselfish kind of anger that's based out of love. And then there's a selfish kind of anger that's based on, you hurt my pride. It's why you're angry and how long you stay angry. Because here's what happens, the problem with this. That's what the Bible says, try and deal with anger quickly. Because the long anger turns into resentment and resentment turns into bitterness. And resentment and bitterness are the two things that will kill any marriage. Fights won't. Don't worry about the fights. You, we're all going to have fights. It's if they start to fester and they start to turn into resentment and bitterness. This is the problem. And that, by the way, is always a sin. Resentment and bitterness. God wants us to learn to control anger and to use it sparingly and proportionally and wisely. Now, the problem is, is that there are inappropriate inexpression, excuse me, expressions of anger. And there are kind of two extremes. Number one is, the, and you know this, you've probably seen this somewhere in your life. The ones who clam up and they stuff their anger. And the other ones, what do they do? What's the opposite of them? Mount Vesuvius, they blow up. Put it another way, it's either like the mute, who's, or the other side, the maniac. That's what I talk the whole thing out at a million miles an hour. And, and it doesn't matter. Some, uh, the, other, the other analogy is almost like, if you want to analogize this, it's, it's almost like a skunk versus a turtle. And when skunks are upset, everybody in the house knows, right? You can smell it. And the turtles, what do they do? They pull their head clean to their shell. Pull your head and that's probably where it comes from, right? <laughs> pull their heads and straight into their shell. Now, what I've discovered is that often skunks seem to marry turtles. Yeah? So in your marriage, when one of you blows up, the other one clams up and dies for cover. And neither is righteous. They're both inappropriate ways of dealing with anger because love is not irritable or easily angered. They haven't got a hairpin trigger. The Bible is very specific, on the other hand, and warns you and I, young people, listen carefully, about the cost of uncontrolled anger, which causes foolish things to happen. Not on your outline, but up here, Proverbs 15, 18. A hot-tempered man stirs up dissension, stirs the pot, gets the thing going. But a patient man, this is the antithesis, that person calms down the quarrels. Hot-tempered versus the patient person who calms down the quarrels. Proverbs 15, 18. Some people talk about arguments and mistakes, but in Proverbs 14, 29, it says, If you stay calm, if you stay calm, you are wise. But if you have... So that's the one side. Again, like most Proverbs, the other side of it, is that, but if you have a hot temper... You only show how stupid you are. The Bible is very clear. Hot-tempered people are stupid if they don't control that temper. Then the Bible says, um, which is on your outline, Proverbs 79, back to our original thought, love forgets mistakes. So when you hold on to a mistake and you keep remembering it over and over and, and reminding your spouse of it, that, by definition, is not loving. 
nagging, not just Nick's part, nagging about those mistakes separates even close friends. So don't keep bringing out, that's what the scriptures are saying, do not keep bringing out, well, you did that, remember that? In 1985, you did this. You know? And then another one which underlines this principle is Proverbs 19.11. The last part is, it is your glory. It is to your credit if you can overlook an offense. It shows your emotional maturity when you overlook an offense. People who don't get offended easily let things cut, cut people a bit of slight. They overlook irritations. They overlook offenses. That is one of the marks of emotional maturity. You're letting the brake fly clean over your shoulder. You're not picking up everything and defending everything. There's a time to fight, and that's a whole other message on how to have a good fight. Because you are going to have them. But sometimes you need to know the rules, how you do engage. Here's another good verse. 1 Thessalonians 5.15 Be careful that when you get on each other's nerves, <laughs> you don't snap at each other. Ever found something doing that? You're talking away and snap. Whoa, where did that come from? You're shocked by the response, right? It says look for the best in each other. It's very easy, as these women were saying on that video, to always look for the worst in our spouse and in our children. The Bible says here the, tree, that the, the key is to look for the best in each other and always do your best to bring it out. So if we just memorize that last verse, be careful when you get on each other's nerves, don't snap. Snap at each other. That's often with our mouth. That's what will happen first. You'll shoot from the lip, right? And that starts the whole process moving. And then we get into the attack, defend, attack, defend. And then we eventually end up with the old Mexican standoff, as we know. So, the second way you can show mercy to your family, number two, is to be kind when they don't deserve it, but they need it. To be kind when members of your family and your siblings don't deserve it, but they need it. Now, there are four kinds of people in your family tree. I'm going to call them VDPs. Doesn't sound very good, does it? <laughs> well, let me tell you what that means. That's very draining people. Maybe you have some of those in your family tree. I'm not just talking about dads and mums and kids or the nuclear family. I'm talking about those, you know, you know those ones at the extended edges of the family. Now, don't look at them right now. But you know who they are. These are the people in your extended family who are very difficult people. They're hard to work with. They're crazy makers. They're irresponsible. They're immature. And actually, very often, very deficient in social skills. <laughs> and one of their defects, as this lady said up here, is they're rude. They're the difficult people. Then you get other people that are demanding in your extended family. These are the pushy, aggressive types who are insistent on their way and their opinion. They're very stubborn. 
and they're self-centered. They typically only see their own way. They're usually perfectionists, and if you don't meet their standard, boy, are they demeaning. Maybe you can identify somebody in your tree right now. <laughs> and then you've got the other type. Two more. I want to talk about VDPs. Number, one, uh, num number three, in this case, is they're the disappointing ones. These are the ones that let you down consistently. They're flakes. They tell you're going to do something, and they never deliver. They may even be disloyal, and they break promises. And they don't seem to care. They are the disappointing types of the VDPs. And the fourth type of VDP, generally, are those are the destructive types. Now, hopefully, you don't have too many of those. These are the ones who intentionally actually hurt you. They're damaging, and they're dangerous, and they're double-dealing, and they're debilitating to you. And these are the ones who tend, intend to actually harm you. How do you deal with these kinds of people? The Bible says, and gives us some hints. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4 plus 7. Let's talk about from our own home for a start. Love is patient. That's God's love. My love runs out somewhere along there. That's why I need God's love to help me. Love is kind and it's supportive. Are you always supportive? You say, well, how can I be more patient? How can I be more kinder? How can I be more just helpful there? Here's the answer in the next verse. Proverbs 11, uh, 19, 11 on the screen here. A man's wisdom gives him patience. Here's the key. If you want to be patient with somebody... You need to learn about what makes them tick, what's gone on in their lives. Because I've found if you sometimes understand their fears and what have, what's driven them, some of their life circumstances and some of their hurts, you often become a lot more patient with them. And I've also noticed in this church, you can fill this in for me, hurt people, hurt pe yeah, that's brilliant, you get it. You see, we don't normally automatically just hurt people. You hurt people when you are hurting. And other people hurt you when they are hurting. But if you can use wisdom and patience and look past their anger and you look to their pain, sometimes I've found that gives me some propensity to cut them some slack, like some of the people you work with. Some of those VDPs. If you actually knew where they had come from, you'd be more patient with them. Now, when you have wisdom, when you understand people, why people do what they do, you'll be more patient. A man's wisdom gives him patience. Next verse on your outline, Proverbs 3.27. Whenever you're able, do good to people who need help. Doesn't mean to say they deserve it. They need help. There are a lot of people in your life, maybe even in your family, they don't deserve your kindness, they haven't at all been kind to you. But the Bible says you need to give them what they need, not what they deserve. My mum used to say to me, you never fall to their level and stoop to their level. Don't do that. She was actually paraphrasing this verse here, Proverbs 3.27. Which is, by the way, what God does to you and I. God gives me what I need. He gives you what you need, not what you deserve and not what I deserve. That's called mercy. 
And when we do that, we behave this way, we are following the character of our Father. That is maturity, godly maturity. Now, the Bible gives us a bunch of reasons for being kind. I didn't put them on your outline, but I'm going to give you a few of them here. Firstly, God, why should I be kind to other people? Because first of all, God has been kind to me. The Bible says this in Ephesians 2, up on the screen, verse 4 through 5. God's wonderful kindness is what saves you. It's not because you're so good or I'm so good. God's wonderful kindness saves me. See, God's showing kindness to you. Even though I don't deserve it, God wants you to show kindness to others. You've been shown extravagant kindness by God. Second, kindness is an act of worship. You want to worship God? Worship is not just singing. It's not just reading the Bible, but showing kindness. It honors God. The Bible says in Proverbs 14.31, here it is here. Kindness shown to the poor is an act of worship. Here's another verse, Proverbs 14.31 from the NCV, New Century Version. Whoever is kind to the needy honors God. God. Third reason. Here's a good one. Kindness makes you attractive. That's what the Bible says. Proverbs 19.22. Kindness makes a man attractive. So forget the Botox. <laughs> Just be nice. And you'll be a lot more attractive. Here's another one. Kindness makes other people want to be kind to you. You probably said this to your own kids. Here's what James says. If you refuse to act kindly, you can hardly expect to be treated kindly. And one last one. God blesses kindness, so he will repay you. The Bible says here on your screen again, God blesses everyone who is kind to the poor. Or another verse again, being kind to the poor is like lending to the Lord. He will reward you for what you have done. But what about family members who are so unkind to you? A sibling or a brother or a cousin. What do you do about that? Well, 1 Thessalonians 5.15 is helpful in this case. It says, don't be hateful to people just because they are hateful to you. Rather, be good to each other and everyone else. Amazingly practical, the Bible. It's not the things I don't understand about the Bible that worry me, it's the things that I do understand. Verses like that last one, right? Very clear. Third, the third way we can show mercy to our family is this, by letting go of past hurts. By letting go of past hurts. Do you do that? Or do you keep a mental record, like a little diary, of every wrong, like your, everything that your husband or your wife has ever done wrong, or your kids, or your parents have ever done wrong, the shortcomings? The Bible says that love, real love, the godly kind of love, doesn't keep a record and store up this whacking great ever-accumulating list of the hurts and the offenses, so that when you get stuck in a corner, you can pull them out as ammunition to lend strength to the current argument, which has often got nothing to do with what was back then, but you, at that stage, rationality has gone out the window. 
I heard a guy once say, I went home last night, I was having a discussion with my wife which turned into an argument and my wife got incredibly historical. And the guy says, what do you mean? Historical? It should be hysterical. I said, no, historical. She told me everything I've ever done wrong. See, love keeps no record of wrongs. So I want you to write this down somewhere. This is really a very simple, pithy axiom. Don't repeat it. Delete it. Don't repeat it. Delete it. Don't repeat it. Delete it. That means three things, just in case we're unclear about that. When your spouse or someone in your family hurts you, don't rehearse it over and over in your mind. Because if you do it over and over, what will happen is a, a very negative thing will come up, a negative emotion called resentment. So don't rehearse it in your mind. Second, don't keep bringing it back up and using it as a relational weapon. And thirdly, certainly do not tell others about it. That is gossip. That is gossip. And the Lord is very clear about what he thinks about gossip. So you let it go. Back to our verse, 1 Corinthians 13, 5. Love is not rude. Love does not demand its own way. And boy, that can come in many ways. If you don't do what I say, I will withdraw sex. I will withdraw emotional support. I will withdraw financial support. I will withdraw my friendship. I will withdraw my companionship. Love is not rude. Love does not demand its own way. It is not irritable or touchy. That's kind of like when you walk around feeling that you're near walking on eggshells. Everybody feels like they're walking on eggshells. There's this unholy truce where rah, you don't want to shake, the, shake it too much. It does not hold grudges. That is biblical love. Does not hold grudges. The fourth way, and the last way, that you can show mercy to a family member is this. Believing God is working in the lives of those others. You believe and trust that God is working in the life of your spouse or your children, even though you may not see that right then. See, faith and mercy and love and grace all go together. 1 Corinthians 13, 7, love always trusts. It doesn't just trust other people, it trusts God when we're doing the right thing even though they don't deserve it. Love always trusts, love is always hopeful, it's not hopeless. Love is always hope-filled and love perseveres through whatever comes. So how do you know if you trust in God in your marriage and for your marriage and in your family? Well, you look at how much you pray about it. How much you pray about it. Do you throw yourself on the mercy of God? Because if you pray about your marriage and your family a lot, you're trusting God a lot. If you, if you pray about and, and, you know, your marriage a little bit, well, you're trusting God a little bit. And if you don't pray about your marriage and that, or the other relationship that's important to you, you're not trusting God at all in that area. If you're trusting and believing God to work in your family, it will be very clearly seen in your prayers. Psalm 28 verse 2 says this, Lord, 
Hear my prayer for mercy. When I call to you for help, when I lift my hands towards your most holy place. The fact is that some of you right now are in crisis in your family. And some of you are struggling in your marriage. And you may even feel a little overwhelmed or hopeless. But regardless of the problem in your marriage or your family, the Bible would encourage you to throw yourself on the mercy of God. Cast yourself on God's love and on his mercy. Because you need to turn to God's love and God's mercy. There's a guy that did, uh, guy that did this in the Bible. And his name was Jeremiah. A prophet, Jeremiah. And even though he was a special man who God used mightily, his life was in an uproar. It was a shamuzzle. His life had fallen apart, but he didn't give up hope because he turned to the mercy of God. And it's the very last verse on your outline. Notice it. In Lamentations 3, verse 20. I will never forget this awful time. That's what he was going through right there and then. As I grieve over my loss, he'd just taken a big hit. Yet, so there's the admission. Yet, I still dare to hope when I remember this. The unfailing love of the Lord never ends. By his mercies, we have been kept from complete destruction. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh each day. Now that is a source of hope. Did you notice that these four things that God expects you to do within your family, God does them with you every single day of your life. These are the same way that God shows you mercy. Firstly, God overlooks and forgives your sin and offenses and all the things that could stand between you and him by his mercy. Second, point on your outline is God is kind to you when you need it, not because you deserve it. Third, God wipes out, he rubs it out, he doesn't rub it in. He wipes out and forgets your past sin when you trust Jesus, when you specifically ask him to. Do you want your sins wiped out and washed clean? As pure virgins know, not stained and dirty. He does that out of his mercy. And then fourthly, God is working in your life, even when you don't know or even feel it. And so this Mother's Day, do you need to accept God's mercy in your life? 